So tonight we get to meet together, finishing up our exploration of the first noble truth and moving into the second noble truth, this map of insights or this array of awakening, you could say, this path of awakening described as the Four Noble Truths or these Twelve Insights. There is dukkha, there is stress or experience, is limited. This is relevant, should be understood, it has been understood. So those are the first three insights. There is a cause, the cause should be abandoned, not I'm going to get rid of the cause of suffering. But it's more when we have the insight this should be abandoned, the mind, wisdom in the mind is seeing that this habit of attaching, clinging, is not functional, it's not helpful. So the mind realizes this should be abandoned. It's not the same as me trying to get rid of attachment. It's just the recognition this isn't helpful. This should be abandoned. And the third insight in the second noble truth, it has been abandoned. There is cessation. It should be realized. It has been realized. And then the last three insights, there is a path. It should be developed. It has been developed. So that's that map of insights or that path of awakening. And really in in Buddhism, Understanding this directly, internally, in your own experience is a description of wisdom. So as you're living, as we're living our lives, then our relationship to experience is in terms of this map. Oh, there's stress. It's relevant. It has been understood. There's a cause. It's not helpful. It's been abandoned. There's cessation. There's a heart now free of suffering. This should be fully realized, fully understood. It has been fully understood. Oh, there's a way of being, a way of relating, a path. It should be developed. It has been developed. So this is, um, you know, as it should be, this map of the Four Noble Truths should look like every other map you've ever heard or um, worked with from the Buddhist teachings, because he's not teaching different paths or different approaches. It's the same approach. So Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing, manifesting as Sangha, it's the same as the Four Noble Truths or any of the other paths that you've heard. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. I remember, I don't think I read this last week. Now you're looking at the pain or the anguish you feel, not from the perspective of it's mine, but as a reflection. There is this suffering, this dukkha. It is coming from the reflective position of Buddha seeing Dhamma, the awakened quality of the mind, opening, connecting with the way things are. He goes on, he says, this insight is simply the acknowledgement that there is this suffering without making it personal. That acknowledgement is an important insight. Just looking at <coughs> just looking at mental anguish or physical pain and seeing it as dukkha rather than as a personal misery, just seeing it as dukkha and not reacting to it in a habitual way. So it should have that flavor. Seeing dukkha should have the flavor of liberation. Because seeing it, seeing stress, opening to stress, means not resisting it or not personalizing it. So it's still maybe unpleasant, whatever you're opening to, or limited or unsatisfying. But it's liberating to see it, it's just that, instead of personalizing it. And this is something that, uh, if you don't understand it, it's because I'm not doing a good job explaining it. It's something we do all the time when we're sitting, like with physical pain. 
one of the really common experiences is, you know, there, there the awareness is, knowing the unpleasant sensation in the back or the knee or whatever. And it's constantly shifting because sometimes that awareness of the physical discomfort is very much a personal problem and sometimes it's not. And it really has to do whether the mind, the wisdom in the mind is aware that it's dukkha or not. Because when we're not seeing it as dukkha, then we're seeing like it's me, you know, it's my pain or this pain belongs to me. So, you know, we sometimes we talk about having space in the mind. Well, being able to name experience, pleasant and unpleasant, as dukkha. All experience is dukkha, right? Even the pleasant experience, it's dukkha because it is limited. It can't provide lasting satisfaction. It doesn't give us the ground we want in life experience. Um, um, some of you are probably nobody, but maybe one or two of you got a chance to look at the article I sent out this afternoon, The Weight of Mountains. We've used it in another of our Buddhist studies classes over the years. And it's a nice article where Ajahn Tanisaro is uh, sharing a story that one of his teachers used, one of his Thai forest Ajahn's teachers that uh, he met with when he was living and practicing in Thailand as a monk before he moved back to the States. And the story is quite simple. It's that uh, mountains are heavy, but they're only a problem when you try to lift them. Heavy, the heaviness of mountains aren't a problem unless you're trying to move them. So the the, uh, impermanence and the ephemeral nature and the limited nature and the unsatisfactory nature of experience, memory, thought, sound, taste, pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, the limitation of sense experience is only a problem if we cling to that experience as a way to make us happy or to give us ground or to create meaning. So if we're trying to extract, trying to feed on sense experience, even thought, then it's like trying to move a mountain. We've got a problem. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is to understand that this first noble truth, there is dukkha. We're talking about dukkha in the most general sense. Experience is limited. Now, it becomes suffering when we want experience not to be limited. You know, we want the experience to give me something. We come to our practice because we want to get something. We go home and we make a nice meal because we want to get something from it. Well, what would that be like to go through the day or to go through the rest of today without trying to get something from experience, like to hear a talk or to participate in a group conversation or to drive home or to do whatever you do without trying to protect yourself or get something. But that doesn't mean you're trying to not protect yourself. It's just we're not uh, in this sort of subtle way Expecting something from sense experience. What is the mind's relationship? And so the easy way to begin is just to notice that when we like take up the Buddha's instruction and we highlight the unsatisfactory, limited, ephemeral nature of experience, when we highlight that, is it liberating? Because then the mind is liberated from mistakenly thinking it can get something from whatever sense experience it's knowing. Like when we turn on a TV show and it looks really good. And then we fall into this 
habit, this trap of thinking I'm going to get something from watching it. And then at the end, when it's over, on some level, if we don't immediately fill up the space, we feel a little bit betrayed. Oh, it's over already? That's it? So any nice experience, you know, really, really, really nice, or just a kind of an ordinarily, ordinary pleasant experience, notice that quality of betrayal, what it ends. And the way we generally notice is that we want another experience because we're not full, we're still hungry. We still want to feed on another experience. So what's the next one going to be? What's the next one going to be? What's the next one going to be? Nowadays, you know, we've sort of been trained to have a pretty short attention span. And you notice, I notice, maybe you notice too, you know, like when I'm reading an article. I mean, who reads books anymore? When we re- we're reading articles, I know some, I pretend to, I have a lot of around. <laughs> but anyway, have you, have you noticed, as I've noticed, it's sort of like, I'm sort of reading to find a relevant experience, you know. Just kind of, there's got to be something here. Just moving through the text. And even now, you know, when you're streaming things, it's the same thing with video, whatever it is, news or entertainment. It's like, where's the interesting part? Where's the important part? So, this is that's that feeling of hunger or the mind being dependent, feeling dependent on sense experience. So what's the alternative to that? So if that's something, then there's a not that. You know, that's one way. What's the other way? Being so we're still a sensitive being, having experiences continuously, but now we're not trying to get anything from the experiences. We're still having pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant experiences. Sometimes they're glorious, sometimes really difficult. But we're not trying to get anything from the experiences of our lives. So what would that be like to to be engaged but not expecting anything, not demanding anything from experience? I mentioned, um, you know, different people have formulated or restated the Four Noble Truths in different ways. So I'll share a few just to kind of get different perspectives on the map. So this is from Ajahn Sushito, wonderful Western monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition. So the first Noble Truth, he says, and this is his, like, in the most mundane way, without a lot of wisdom, this is how this map can be useful. So for the first noble truth, there is dukkha, is the traditional formulation. He says, one recognizes that the self-centered appetite for things to have, to control, or to become is not appeased through gratification. So this is what we want to notice and experience, that that hunger, that appetite to have, to control, to become, we don't actually get from experience. So whatever draws us into the refrigerator to have that particular experience or to draws us into an entertainment to have an experience, we want to see that that hunger, that appetite, doesn't actually go away having been drawn in and then we do eat or we watch something or we... So it's the non-appeasement that is dukkha. The hunger not going away is the dukkha. So we often think, you know, that the dukkha is that it's March and, you know, it's cold or something like that or nobody, I'm lonely. But the, the dukkha is the hunger, meaning the heart, wants it to be, wants this to be other than what it is. And then even when it becomes other than what it is, it wants it to be other than what it is. That's, that uneasiness is the subtle expression. Then for the second noble truth, which is traditionally 
there's a cause for stress. There is stress, is the first. There's a cause. Ajahn Sushito says, the cause of suffering is this very need and hankering for gratifying experiences and irritation with what we find disagreeable. So it's the very hankering for gratifying experiences. So this is what, you know, this is why liberation is described as peace. It's the peace of not hankering for gratifying experiences. But that's not nihilistic because it's easy to, the only way we can basically imagine that is to like give up. This sort of despair, despairing, like well, what's the bother? It's not really going to be fulfilling, so I give up. But we're still hankering for a gratifying experience. So nihilism is the sort of strange belief that not caring will be gratifying or giving up will be gratifying. So it's the same game, it's just maybe in the opposite direction, but it's still seeking gratification, but by disengagement instead of engagement. But like I said, disengagement is a just a different expression of engagement. You know, we're engaging with disengagement. And then the third noble truth, he says, simplifying one's needs and, ex- and expectations and learning to appreciate one's innate sense of being. Right? So there is cessation. There is freedom from suffering, from stress. And he says, simplifying one's needs and, experience and expectations and learning to appreciate one's innate sense of being. Now this is something, again, probably we've all touched in moments. He calls it our sensing one's innate, what does he say? Us, um, appreciating one's innate sense of being. We get, that's a, a relatively accessible state, both in meditation and daily life, where instead of the mind obsessing about an experience, or trying to feed on some experience, the mind has, in a sense, it's just a sense, a way of describing it, settled back into this innate, open, unhindered being, beingness. It always sounds funny to say, but it there's an inner contentedness not because of the experience, what's being known, but it's really the contentedness is because the mind isn't hankering for an experience. It's not so much that this experience is perfect as much as the mind has let go of its dependency on experience. Now, of course, it's relatively, or it's easier to have that kind of experience when the experience is really pleasant. Because just on a very superficial level, like when we get something we really wanted, there is a momentary contentedness before the hunger continues. And if we really learn to pay attention to moments of getting what we want and feeling that contentedness, and then noticing the contentedness independent of having had a desire gratified. We can learn how to more readily settle into that space of innate being, just being. My mother had relatively early onset of Alzheimer's, but she stopped working. Uh, This is, I think she got diagnosed when she was uh, uh, 69, almost 70. And uh, but she she stopped working. I think when she was sixty two, she was a, a a clerk who at a pharmacy, and they had other you know kind of basic groceries and other things there. So she ordered everything except for the drugs with the pharmacist ordered, and mostly sat behind the cash register and checked people out. And she kind of liked it because it was a community. It was up by North Memorial. And uh, it was a real community that went through there. And, and then, But she stopped working when she was 62. And 
she just spent a lot of time sort of hanging out in the house. And uh, I remember, and I was, of course, at that time really into my meditation practice. And at first she was really mistrustful. But we had a few conversations, and I would ask her, like, what do you, what do, you do just <laughs> sitting there? And she, and she would say something like, oh, I'm, just, I'm just kind of... And she'd always put it in the context. She was always a little sarcastic about, you know, I raised seven kids. This is my chance just to be, you know, to kind of quiet, no problems, no, nobody bothering me, things like that. But she had a kind of a capacity just to fill her days not doing too much. And it, she didn't like read books or watch TV too much or things like that. And then, of course, later when um, the Alzheimer's became obvious, you know, it, it always begs the question. But there's something about um, letting things be simple because so much of the busyness is this hankering for gratification, thinking we're going to get something that we've never gotten before from experience, but this time we're going to get it. And there's something like, there is a kind of spiritual exhaustion when, in moments at least, we have a sense that whatever we're hankering after, it's going to be like the other things we hankered after. So maybe we don't have to hanker after it. And notice this especially playing out in your meditation. Hankering after an experience, getting to that sweet spot. I know I can get myself there. I know how to get, I'm going to get myself there. And notice the dukkha, right? And the last way that Ajahn Sushito describes, or the last noble truth, the way Ajahn Sushito describes it, he says, calming down, becoming more centered. I'm sorry, I've got to look at my, use my glasses. Calming down, becoming more centered, experience the fullness of the Eightfold Path. Let me read another. So this is Sylvia Borstein's. Her first, you know, there is dukkha. She says, life is challenging for everyone. Our physical bodies, our relationships, all of our life circumstances are fragile and subject to change. We are always accommodating. And the second she says, the cause of suffering is the mind struggle to in response to challenge. So that's what we're looking at now with the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is the mind's struggle in response to challenge. So our mind is always challenged by the ephemeral, ungovernable nature of experience. So do we have to struggle with that challenge? I mean, it's being provoked by the ephemeral, changing, ungovernable nature of our mind, of our external circumstances, do we have to get tight? And the third, she says, the end of suffering, a non-struggling, peaceful mind is a possibility. And then the fourth, she says, the program, Eightfold Path, for ending suffering is, and then she just goes through the eight steps, wise understanding, wise intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And then finally, Ajahn Buddhadasa, first Instead of there is dukkha, he says, we see so we can know. And then there's a cause, he says, knowing allows us to let go, right, of craving or clinging. Knowing allows us to let go. And then the third, cessation of suffering, he says, letting go allows us to be free. And the fourth, he says, being free allows us to see more clearly, right, see more clearly the path. Another way to get a clearer sense of the cause, like there is dukkha and there's a cause, is the mind's relationship to the mind and body. Because remember, from the Buddha's analysis of his own experience, his own mind, suffering arose because of a misperception. The mind is not so much misperceiving experience, it's misperceiving the experiencer. And 
So it's, in Buddhist terms, it's the misunderstanding of the mind-body or the five aggregates. So the five aggregates are the body, the five physical senses, and then the mind or the other four aggregates, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And I, I don't think I've mentioned this simile the Buddha used about, that I mentioned about the dog being tied to the post and running around. And uh, some of you, I mean, dogs can kill themselves this way. Uh, Wynn's brother had a dog that killed itself, same being tied to a post and uh, running around and getting caught up. And this is the image the Buddha uses to talk about how we have a body, we have a mind, and we run around. Suppose practitioners, a dog tied up on a leash, was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running, revolving around that same post or pillar. So too, the uninstructed worldling regards form as self, the body as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self. The uninstructed whirling just keeps running and revolving around form, feeling, perception, volitions, and consciousness. As one keeps on running around them, we are not freed from them. We are not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, pleasure, and despair, not free from suffering. But the instructed noble disciple does not regard form as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitions as self, consciousness as self. One no longer keeps running and revolving around them. That's that hankering. And as we no longer keep running around them, we are freed from them, freed from birth, aging, and death, freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, and despair, free from suffering. So when we change, you know, we're cultivating a different way of relating to the mind and body. So when we pay attention to the breath, when we pay attention to the body, when we're being mindful with our food, what we're really being mindful with is the body and mind. And the external circumstances is how we know the body and the mind, really, right? We're cold. We go out in the weather, and then we we know the, how the body is. Or we sit still, and we know how the body is. So we know how the mind is. The mind doesn't like sitting still. So our participation in the world, we can use to obsess about the object of experience. And it may even seem, from some of the meditation instructions you've been given, that the Buddha wants us to pay attention to sense experience. But what the Buddha wants us to do is understand the nature of the body and mind. Understand what the body and mind are or is and what it's not. Because it's that understanding, the five aggregates or the body and the mind, that leads to this letting go. I think this is from Ajahn Tanisaro. He says, One solves the problem of stress by following a path of practice that directly attacks the cause of the problem. The Noble Eightfold Path develops the quality of mind needed to see that all the possible objects of craving, the five aggregates, are stressful and constant and not self. So whatever it is that the mind can know is stressful and constant and not self. As a result, one grows dispassionate toward them. With nothing left to focus on, craving disbands. When one experiences the remainderless, the remainderless fading and cessation and renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving, the problem is solved. Right? So the Ajahn Tanisara was quoting the Buddha. That's a famous phrase, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving, right? So the cause is craving or clinging. The end of suffering is the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. 
And then whatever problem there appears to be no longer is there. Craving and the end of craving. And if we just remember that much, like if we could actually bring that, and this could be a great theme and and a, a great topic for the small groups next Monday, just bring this into your life in the most ordinary ways, like sitting down with your cereal tomorrow morning or your whatever tomorrow morning or for lunch or tonight when you go home. And then just play with craving and the end of craving and the investment we have in craving and moments where that craving is released. Like the mind isn't organizing the experience around that force of craving. Because it it has to be created. Craving is a moment-to-moment phenomenon. All it takes is one moment of non-craving, and it's non-craving. It's not like because we are attached, we're going to be attached to the next moment. We have to actually be attached to the next moment and in the next moment. And you'll see, especially when you take it up as a theme, you'll see you can go back and forth being the one who craves another bite, being okay. It's not that you're not going to take another bite, but you're experiencing experiencing a moment of the mind not being dependent on taking another bite. And then in the next moment, identification with the craving is there again. And there feels to be some dependence on taking the next bite. I used to do this a lot with entertainments. <laughs> it's just very interesting to like, uh, okay, I'm shutting it off. I'm done. You know. And then sometimes I would do it even in the middle of a show or middle of reading an article that I was interested in. And I just, okay, I'm done. And I, and I realized, God, that's it's really not a problem. And then it was so interesting to say, well, if it's not a problem, why don't you go read it? Or, you know, continue. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then do it again. Now, it's, this is the kind of play I think that would be useful this week to really see that craving can be put down. And then it can be picked up. And for a while, you might actually be free in the experience until the mind starts to organize around the sense of being the somebody who really likes this, who wants to get to the end. And it's really nice when there's like even more than food, because we do get sated with that particular kind of food, but with entertainments, especially the way they work, you know, sort of there's a hook at the end. So you you really want to get to the end and sort of step away from it, like not needing to know how this ends how the chapter ends or how the TV show ends. And to really walk away from it. And don't say you're never going to watch it. You know, you have to be careful with results. But you could say, like, I'm not going to watch it tonight and, and tomorrow you can do whatever you want. But tonight I'm going to notice what that feels like to walk away from it. And to see, is there suffering in the non-gratification? Does there have to be suffering? And just to see, see what you learn from that. The Buddha <laughs> talked about the power of these four noble truths in really powerful ways. I'm just share a couple. Practitioners, <clears throat> these four things are actual, unerring, not otherwise. What for? This is suffering. This practitioners is actual, unerring, not otherwise. This is the origin of this suffering. This is actual, unerring, not otherwise. This is the cessation of suffering. This is actual, unerring, not otherwise. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So he's saying this is not a conceptual map. This is something directly that we can directly experience, see, know in our own lives. And then another time, Practitioners, I say that 
The destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who knows what? And then he goes through the Four Noble Truths. Therefore, practitioners, an exertion should be made to understand this is suffering, this is the cause, this is the end, and this is the way. An exertion should be made to understand this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. (laughs) And here's the provocative one. Practitioners, if one's clothes or head were ablaze, what should be done about it? Venerable sir, if one's clothes or head were ablaze, to extinguish one's blazing clothes or head, one should arouse extraordinary desire, make an extraordinary effort, stir up zeal and enthusiasm, be unremitting, and exercise mindfulness and clear comprehension. Practitioners, one might look on equanimously at one's blazing clothes or head, pay no attention to them, but so long as one has not made the breakthrough, to the Four Noble Truths as they really are, in order to make the breakthrough, one should arouse extraordinary desire, make an extraordinary effort, stir up zeal and enthusiasm, be unremitting, and exercise mindfulness and clear comprehension. What for? And then he goes through the Four Noble Truths. And finally, practitioners, suppose there were a person with a lifespan of a 100 years who could live 100 years, someone would say to this person, come, good person, in the morning they will strike you with a 100 spears, at noon they will strike you with a 100 spears, in the evening they will strike you with a 100 spears, and you, good person, being struck day after day by 300 spears will have a lifespan of 100 years, will live 100 years, and then after 100 years have passed, you will make a breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths to which you you had not broken through earlier. And he goes on and says, that would be a deal worth taking, right? (laughs) Uh, 300 spears every day for 100 years. Because, again, you know, it's not something necessarily to take as a literal truth, although I know that I don't know, and so I have an open mind. But the way the Buddha and Buddhism, it's talked about in cosmological terms that we have been basically seeking gratification in what can't gratify for a beginningless time. And the tendency is just to keep doing that. And so even though this body certainly will end, you know, in sort of traditional Buddhist terms, the mind stream, the tendency of this mind to think that I can get an experience that will satisfy me continues on, takes rebirth over and over and over and over. So the Buddha has so many provocative images of crying more tears in this these rounds of rebirth than water in the four great oceans or things like that. So both to create a sense of the vastness of doing the same thing, getting the same results. To motivate us to cultivate this shift in relationship to sense experience. And we have to remember, he starts off this talk not just pointing out the air of getting attached, dependent on sense experience, but equally telling people, telling the people he was speaking to, not to reject sense experience, not to think asceticism is the way giving up on having a body that requires food and shelter and basic comforts. So how to be in this world and feed the body and have the sort of social networks that we need to feel safe and comfortable in our existence, how to take care of the basic needs and not be dependent on sense experience. That's our path. That's what the Four Noble Truths are all about. So the next step is to take a good look at the experience of the cause of suffering. 
which we'll talk about tonight for a few more minutes, and then um, maybe you have some comments. And then next week, we'll continue looking at the cause. So the Buddha uses the word upadana, which usually gets translated as clinging. And uh, clinging is both this activity of attachment, but it's also the, um, it's like holding on, but there's a kind of sucking, like trying to get something from the holding on. We're trying to get gratified, trying to get sustenance or be fed from the holding on. So it's not just attaching or getting dependent, but it's thinking and attempting to get something from the experience. So that's the cause. That's what we have to see. And then remember the three insights. There is this cause. There is this tendency of the mind to cling, to try to get something from experience. It should be abandoned, meaning the mind should see that this isn't helping. It's just stress. It's not functional. You don't get something. It's like we think no pain, no gain. Without that really wanting it, you know, that stress of attachment, of desire, nothing good happens in life. That's that's the ignorance. Thinking that we have to be tight for good things to happen. So it's really interesting, like at a place like Common Ground, so many of us over the years have made this place come to be. An in, you know, incalculable number of volunteer hours <laughs> have made this place what it is today. And, you know, to whatever degree that activity, all the work that went into this place kind of sprouting and coming into being, to whatever degree there was some uh, dependency, then there's suffering. So how do we set things in motion have a family or, you know, save for retirement or take care of our body without that unnecessary extra setting emotion suffering. So there is dukkha, or there is a cause rather. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So we want to see that cause and we want to isolate it like so that the awareness, the clear comprehension knows how to go right to the cause. And remember, there's just this moment, but there's different ways of looking at the moment. You can look at the moment as an object, so subject knowing this object. Oh, this is the pain in my knee, the throbbing in my knee, the burning in my knee. Or you can look at that you're recognizing it, you're knowing the pain in the knee is familiar. Or you can notice that it's unpleasant. So what we're really asking at, uh, like what, where we see that upadana, the clinging is, around the feeling tone. Because it's the mind's response to the feeling. That's the, an ignorant mind responds to all feeling with clinging. That's how an ordinary mind or an ignorant mind or our minds, we relate to feeling, the feeling of an experience with clinging. If it's a neutral experience like my shirt, my, my t-shirt on my back right now is a neutral experience. It's not charged. It's not, it doesn't feel pleasant or unpleasant. So I cling to that experience, believe it or not, by rejecting it as important, right? The mind is denying it, in a sense, or distracted from it because it's neutral. It's not relevant. That's what I think. That's the conditioning of my mind. So there's some tension there. It's clinging to the idea it's not important. The pain in this knee right about here, you know, that's unpleasant. And so the clinging expresses itself as like, I'm clinging to the idea that it would be nice not to have that pain, or, you know, there are different versions of that. Or there's something pleasant, and we cling in a different kind of way. 
So it's a way of getting tight, a way of trying to extract some meaning, some purpose, some something from neutrality, unpleasantness, and pleasantness. So that's why, like in the Four Noble Truths, I'm sorry, in the uh, 16 instructions around mindfulness of breathing, um, we've been getting to that place where we've, you know, been with the breath and we're noticing the, as we have that holistic awareness of the breath, we begin to notice the calm in the body. And there's a lot of pervasive calm in the body. The mind starts to feel really light, joy. When the mind, and we notice the lightness, the joy in the mind, a deeper release of ease happens. And then because now the mind is more stable, steady, we practice being aware of feeling or mental formations. So that's our object of awareness, being with the feeling. And when we're with feeling without being confused by it, the mind gets quieter because right now we're suppressing clinging. We're suppressing the habit of clinging by learning to be aware of feeling without being confused by it. So as you play this week, you know, like with your oatmeal and the pleasantness of it or entertainments and the pleasantness of it, you can specifically notice the pleasantness and be okay just being aware of the pleasantness. See, if we let the pleasantness in or the unpleasantness in, if we make peace with the feeling, then we don't need the clinging. The clinging arises because we're not okay with the feeling. We want more of it or we want it to last. But can the feeling just be what it is, this changing ephemeral feeling in the heart? in the body and mind. So we can, um, if we want to get to know the cause of suffering, you have to notice how it feels right now. Whatever what's predominant in your experience, how does it feel? Because the clinging will be right there. Wanting to ignore it, wanting to hold on to it if it's pleasant, wanting to get rid of it, but it will be a tight relationship with the experience nonetheless. And then you have this option where I can really get intimate with feeling or I can react to it with clinging or craving or grasping. You know, all the ways we talk about this cycle. Let me just read a quote from uh, that article I mentioned that I sent out in the email today, The Weight of Mountains by from Ajahn Tanisaro. As long as there are mountains, there is not much we can do about their inherent weight. But we can learn to break our habit of lifting them up and carrying them around. We can learn to stop clinging. That will put an end to our suffering. And then uh, a little later, when the mind clings to an object, it's feeding on that object. It's trying to gain nourishment from sensory pleasures, possessions, relationships, recognition, status, whatever, to make up for the gnawing sense of emptiness it feels inside. So this is the thing when we are willing to just be with feeling, then we're going to feel the um, absence of reacting to the feeling. And we have to be, we have to learn to be okay with that. It's like a powerful letting go because the reaction to feeling is a very seemingly personal thing. So it's going to evoke a strong sense of exposure or a very poignant existential nakedness when we're just with feeling. Because so much of what we take ourselves to be is our reaction to feeling. Thinking we have to do something around feeling. The Buddha talks about this in Dependent Origination, his teachings on Dependent Origination. That's really the place to focus or to emphasize. So I'll leave it here so we have a little time to hear from other people. 
So, yeah, Anne. Yeah, I, I think I'm going straight for no self. I find like that's rewarding to me, and it's in part, I think, because I like I do deal with death, and today it was like five people almost out of here, and so it sticks with me, like just the final let it go. And also in theater, you know, you spend your time working on a role, and you really invest in the, the not you part of it, which is a place to be where it's a, it's a stream of consciousness where you're being led to do whatever's being done by the not-self. It's a very particular zone. And um, I just wonder about the relationship between craving and not-self. Because when I'm, for flickers, particularly in meditation, sometimes in life, mostly at work, um, where I'm in the not-self part of me, it feels as though there's a porousness to experience that it just pours through me with like a transparency that it wouldn't, you wouldn't really be able to cling anyway, but that it has a real intimacy to it and a really uh, a real fearlessness of like um, because I'm rooted in I guess it would be consciousness. It would be just the watching of it flowing, and so I guess um, the question is. Is if you're in the not self, is it possible to crave? And the one other thing is, you know, if this world, let's imagine that everybody who came before us is still here, whether it's a consciousness or whether it's chi, but that there's a presence of all that came before us. You can call it the immortal or whatever. But if you have to say that that's possibly true, then you have to say, then what are we doing? And I just I just have this feeling sometimes that all that came before us is actually, there is a craving for experience. And that craving for experience includes the knowledge of not clinging to it, but that there's something about us, about our ability to have a body and to be, experience the world from a particular point of view that is something that you don't have when you move on. So that I, I just wonder if it, if we should actually go towards like like you say sense like sense experience exploding life being intimate is actually the way to go to get closer to not craving as opposed to running from it. Yeah, running doesn't work. I mean, the Buddha was very clear: running towards sense experience doesn't work. Running away from sense experience doesn't work understanding sense experience works. And you can't understand sense experience without being intimate with it. But we have to appreciate that the cling, we can cling, the mind clings to anything. It clings to ideas of emptiness. And it, it clings to very expanded states of love. So it can cling to everything. But we just learn where we, we are. You know, So wherever you are, when we're in really beautiful, expanded, uh, seemingly liberated states... The same thing goes. We have to be aware, we have to be intimate with the feeling of that state in order to know whether there's clinging or not, right? Whether there's suffering or not. Whether the mind is dependent on the expanded beauty of that state. You have to be intimate. That's the only way to know if there's freedom or not. Because we're really good at fooling ourselves. And then we might have a lot of freedom, but then the clinging, the grasping comes back and you see this all the time with people all of us who have had some insight in our lives and then it gets personalized and we, the mind now is dependent on the idea of having had insight or the idea of emptiness or the idea of love or the idea that we're all, any being who's ever been, like you just said you know, it's all here we can cling to anything. The mind can get tight and then defensive. And we're not that far from having a war. If someone said, you're full of, you know, doo-doo, you know, or something like that, you know, we could have a war very quickly because of the attachment. Not, it has nothing to do with whether the idea is true or not or whatever that would mean that it's true. It's the clinging that's relevant, not what's true. The Buddha wasn't interested in talking about what's true he was interested in how beings suffer and how they can be free of suffering. 
not what's metaphysically true or not true. Because from the non-self point of view, it's not relevant. What's relevant is suffering and the end of suffering. From this point of view, this subjective point of view, being a human being, what's relevant isn't what the ultimate nature of the universe is. What's relevant is how does suffering, how does this, this, whatever this is, how does it get all clogged up, weighed down? How does it become free of that? That's what's relevant. Very pragmatic. Yeah, Danielle. So maybe relatedly to your comment about the Buddha not being concerned with absolute truth, I just started reading what you sent out earlier, and he kind of talks about two forms of dukkha. One is the dukkha that is the experiences, the compounded experiences, so all experiences are dukkha. And one is the dukkha of clinging. So right. I guess where I struggle a little bit there is if if we didn't work clinging, would those things have dukkha still? <laughs> would they? Yeah, in the in the word, but maybe let's not let's not use the word dukkha. Let's say, would they be unpleasant? That's a more provocative question. So, um, so an arhat is stubs his toe or her toe. You know, is that dukkha? Are the unpleasant sensations dukkha? No, this is a question we can answer ourselves because although we're not arhats, we have moments in our lives where there's a lot of wisdom knowing an unpleasant experience, right? Sometimes there's a lot of wisdom present when something unpleasant is happening. So what's that experience for you? What is the experience when the mind is really in balance, it's not needing the unpleasant sensations to be different than they are. It's not interpreting the throbbing, aching as self or belonging to self. It's just the throbbing, aching, whatever, that movement of sensation, but no part of the mind creating friction. So sensation is a movement, but now the movement is being known by a mind that isn't squeezing it at all. It's just a movement of that throbbing, aching, or whatever. Is that a personal problem or not? No, I don't think so. I mean, not in my experience. It seems like when the more wisdom there is, the more we can be with experience, and it's not a problem. And this is so interesting, it's actually disconcerting because you can imagine when you have, when wisdom arises, and all of a sudden you're sitting there and it really feels like there's not a problem. You can think, you can misunderstand that experience as if problems have been resolved. And then that wisdom goes away and all of a sudden you're way down again. And you can go, wait a minute. It, that actually went away. But what happened was it, the conditions or the circumstances of our lives didn't change. What, what changed is the perspective or the wisdom was there. And when the wisdom goes, the freedom was dependent on the wisdom. Freedom is dependent on view or wisdom. So when there's no wisdom, we're literally suffering beings. And when there's wisdom, we're literally not a suffering being. And for those of us who are in this intermediary stage where we're not fully awake, but we're practicing and we have some understanding of the practice, we have that experience. Sometimes we're really a suffering being, but if we've had some insight, we realize there's some sense that I'm really suffering, but I don't quite believe it 100%. It seems like I'm really a suffering being, but I don't quite believe it. And uh, sometimes... Yeah, there are definitely two... Yeah, so experience will always be ephemeral. Sense experience will always be ephemeral. It will always be groundless because of that, because it's a process, it's not a thing. A being can never own it or have it in any real way. So that's why it's limited or unsatisfying. That's true for a fully awake person or an ordinary person. But an ordinary person, mostly unconsciously, has a problem with the ephemeral unsatisfactory nature of experience. It's always trying to get something that it can't get, can't quite get. 
So that's the difference between uh, somebody who's awake and us ordinary folk. It's nine o'clock. We need to leave it here. So think about anybody who had other thoughts. Save it for your small groups next week. Just take a few seconds just to take a breath or two together. Don't be afraid of letting go of the words. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.